0: Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovic and Dr. Sammy Steele. welcome back to the conscious clinician everyone today we are so excited to have on dr brian sterling he is a residency trained board certified orthopedic specialist since 2020 he's a physical therapist at agile physical therapy and treats pelvic health and orthopedics when he first took a dip into treating pelvic health his eyes opened to a whole new world of medicine that he didn't know existed The amount of potential knowledge to gain, growth to inhabit, and patients to heal in a unique and fulfilling capacity made him excited to specialize in this field, and he is eager to share his experiences as a male treating pelvic health. Brian is my coworker working in a different location. We are on the pelvic health team together and have been excited to work together to learn from each other in different ways. So Brian, welcome on to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
0: We are so excited to have you. Thanks for coming on. Oh, yeah. So, Brian, how did you get into pelvic health since you have such a strong orthopedic background?
1: So I've been asked this question a lot, and I think my answer has been evolving over time. Because when I first got into it, I was just ending my residency at University of Southern California. I was over at a clinic in San Pedro in Los Angeles. And then the USC faculty practice had asked if I could join them. I'm like, yeah, sure. I love USC. I was there as a student, one more opportunity. And they presented me with three options because I had just come out of the orthopedic residency and I wanted to use that knowledge. I didn't want to lose it, but they're like, you can either treat persistent pain oncology or male pelvic health. And I had some background in pelvic health a little bit, because when I was at USC as a student. One of my CIs at the time did treat a little bit of it. So I got some exposure to it and thought it was really interesting. and was definitely open to treating it. And so that was the most appealing option for me. And so I was like, sure, let's see what happens. I'll do it. I was a little apprehensive just because of just having left residency. And I didn't want to lose that knowledge that I gained and worked so hard for. You both did a residency too, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, you want to use that knowledge because it's a very stressful time and you work so hard for it. And then I just ended up loving it. There's just so much within the field that I didn't even know existed, like you mentioned in my bio. And I got my first training in post op prostatectomy, which I think was great. That was a great introduction to pelvic health because it's such a wide field, there's so much breadth there. And It was really just dealing with incontinence. And so I got to work with a lot of patients post-op prostatectomy. And so I felt really confident with that. And once I was confident with that, we then decided, okay, throw out some pelvic pain there, throw out some colorectal patients in there too. And that was hard for me because I didn't have mentoring. So when I first started at USC, I had some mentoring post-op prostatectomy, but I did not get mentoring in the pelvic pain and the, the other little subspecialties there. So I did a lot of self-learning and that's when I felt like I had even more of that interest because I was spending hours outside of work, just trying to learn more. And I think what really helped was having that orthopedic background because I treated so much low back pain. And so I was very confident with certain referral patterns and such. So that's how it happened. So I guess in summary, it fell onto my lap a little bit. I wasn't really sure how it would feel. And then I ended up loving it and I just want to continue treating it. And the men that come to see me, often they feel alone and they felt like people have been telling them that they're totally fine, that nothing's wrong with them. Here, have some antibiotics for this prostatitis, but we often know it's very overly diagnosed as a bacterial prostatitis. And it's just, it's so fulfilling when I can look at them and say, no, this is your pain. And it's just, it's really special. So yeah, that's how I got into it.
2: That's awesome. I'm curious, how did you learn more about these specialty areas that you hadn't had mentoring in? What sorts of things did you use as resources? Did you take coursework? Mm-hmm.
1: So I had MedBridge at the time and MedBridge does have some some online continuing education, but it's not the same when you watch maybe an hour course online versus actually getting in there in like a three-day course, but that did help. And then at the time, I also had colleagues around me that treated pelvic health. I think when I was at USC, there was about five of us. So any questions I would have, I would just ask. And that was also pre-pandemic time where it was much easier to collaborate and have those conversations. And so that was super helpful too.
0: Well, you're one of the few males, I'll say, that I know in pelvic health. And I'm curious what it was like for you getting into the field. If you experienced any challenges or if actually you didn't, and maybe you thought that you would, what was that aspect of it? So
1: it's a great question. I did not have any challenges getting into the field. And I think it's important to also discuss the elephant in the room. Women have been discriminated against in the workforce for the longest time. And so, you know, with the things I'm about to say, I don't want it to minimize anything that women have gone through. And In fact, I've been so welcomed into the field. Mm. And I think it's because men are the minority and women such as yourselves are so generous and passionate about the field. I've been feeling so welcomed. There are barriers that I have experienced in the field, specifically right now I'm only treating men, which I think in the beginning I was okay with because I'm like, you know what, let's simplify it one thing at a time. Now I'm at the point where I I really want to be treating all genders, but I'm not allowed to because I think it has to do with there's a higher potential for malpractice lawsuits. And that's been well-documented for men specifically, that men are more likely to be sued and malpractice than females. So there's that little, how do I say this? There's just that- Like what's a
0: technicality the <laughs> that you-
1: Yeah, there's just those technicalities. And, and so I think some men are just fearful of that. And so they might not want to treat other genders But then there's also the clinics as well. They might not want to have to take that risk. And it's just easier to say, if you're a man, just treat the man. We've got other females and other genders here that can treat all genders. But for you, we'll just leave it at men. And for a while, that bothered me because I want to be able to treat everyone. And I think by denying me access to treating other people that might want my treatment, I think, isn't helpful for the patients. I think that if patients have options of what they're more comfortable with, I think that can be really helpful for their care. They feel more comfortable talking with a specific gender because we deal with sensitive stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you can have an environment where the patient feels as comfortable as possible and they have options, I think that's important.
2: Yeah, I think that the the undercurrent here too is this aspect of fear for your license. I think that can be extremely scary. I experienced that as a female provider. So I think that knowing the statistics about the malpractice lawsuits for men can also magnify that, especially when everyone in your clinic is affirming that fear by not letting you treat female clients, I would love for you to speak a little bit more to how that's affected you. That aspect of that fear for your license or fear of being sued has affected you in your practice.
1: It's a great question. I think just letting that question marinate a little bit to try to get to like how that could have affected because you know, when we're in the zone, well, part of this podcast is just really trying to be conscious about everything we do in healthcare, but also in our personal lives. But when we're in the clinic, we can get in the zone and we're just going from one thing to the next. And sometimes it's hard to think about how fear could have affected my practice. I think in general, what I do is ask for more consent. You know, and I think at times I could even sound like a broken record and the patient might be like, yes, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do what you're going to do. And I'm just like, sorry, you know, I just got to ask, just have to be sure. And I think it's, that's what I do is I just ask consent. More than I might have before. So, for pelvic health in general, like consent with everything, absolutely. But let's say I'm working on the pec minor on a female, I of course ask for consent too, because we ask for consent with everything we do. That extra little consent we might ask. Sure. It okay if Mm -hmm. I just work here and it's by your breast tissue, but that we have muscles here that are tight, I think, are related to your pain. Is that okay? And they're almost always like, absolutely. And then documenting that just to just to make absolutely sure that you're protected. Every single one of my notes, even if it's not pelvic health, says that the patient consented to exam, treatment, et cetera, just to have that safety net. Yeah,
2: I think it's it's a great point to be mindful of this consent piece. I think for all of us, I don't think that's unique to male providers. I think we should all be Mm -hmm. really striving to get active, ongoing consent from our patients for everything that we do. I'll share a little bit of my experience with this aspect of fear as well. When I was in residency, there was a situation with a patient that got a little escalated and I ended up taking it to the risk management people at the, the clinic to just make sure that I was covered with how I had handled everything. And it turned out that I had handled it okay. But throughout that process, it really made me reflect on what it means to practice in a defensive way versus practicing in like an authentic way. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us, when we're put in that defensive mode of being concerned for our license, concerned about being sued, it does change how we communicate, how we practice. It's just a different interaction. It colors your rapport with the patient, how you see the patient. And I think for me, that was something that really impacted me for a long time and made me feel like I had to keep people at a distance because I didn't want that situation to come up again. I could see how that would affect Not just the consent process, but also everything about your dynamic and your relationship. Mm
1: -hmm. You make a great point, Sammy. And I I think this even speaks to how past, we'll use the word trauma. I'm sure we've all experienced trauma in this field. A patient scenario that took us weeks to try to heal from it, whatever it might be, and how that even shapes how we currently practice. I know for myself, I've had some scenarios where. Let's say I'm trying to give a pain talk to a patient and I didn't at this time identify the readiness to change. (laughs) It might've been the pre-contemplative stage and might not have just been ready for it. And I was a new clinician at the time, still trying to even just figure out biomechanics, right? Like this new pain science thing was resurfacing, didn't learn a whole lot about it in school. And I'm trying to have this conversation. I'm a very technical guy. I actually graduated with a degree in neuroscience. So I'm talking all about the brain, the nerves, and how this could be affecting the pain. And he was not happy about it. And unfortunately, there was some yelling, there were some accusations, storming out of the clinic and just left. And it was just a shock. And so what I've realized is that Now I'm afraid to give the pain talk to patients, even when they could really benefit from it. It's just been this fear of mine. I'm like, oh no, am I going to be rejected again? I have to let go of that ego and lay it on the table. And if the patient is ready for it, I think that's important is reading the room and seeing if this patient would be receptive to this type of education. And now over time, I feel like I've been able to read the room better and know when it's okay to give that talk, but it took me a while to get over that. I'm like yeah. comfortable in the tissues and yeah, your pain's coming from this tendon right here. Let's work on it. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, gosh, there have been different things for me. I mean, it hasn't been the pain talk necessarily, but I think we all have those moments where something did not go well with the patient and that avoidance comes up for us. I've definitely been there with a whole bunch of different things and you just go, okay, I'm not good at this thing. I better not do it again. I better not give the pain talk because it just, I, I'm not good at it. I didn't get received well, whatever. And that's, uh, gosh, that's hard.
1: Yeah. And we put a lot of that blame on ourselves. Oh, yeah. Right? And we can't take accountability for everything, right? It's it's you and the patient together. And if the patient isn't doing their part to listen to your wisdom, and your care, because that's all you want to do is help, right? If they're not receptive to that, and they're not taking your advice for whatever reason, I think they should also be held accountable, too.
2: Yeah, well, it's a two-way street. It's not all yeah. about us, and it's not all about them. It's like this interplay, and mm-hmm. we're going to fuck it up sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Like, like especially when it's we're learning. Happen. It's hard. Yeah. It's like a tough pill to swallow. Like You're going to mess it up, probably a lot. And it's just part of the process. But yeah, sticking with it once you've had something come up like
0: that, I could imagine it would be so hard. Absolutely. And behind every well polished spiel that somebody gives, I think are all the moments where you stumble over your words. You don't say it. You don't say it at the right time with the right person, with the the right condition or whatnot. So I think that demonstrates the courage that we need to have as providers to like Brene Brown says, keep showing up, keep stepping into the arena with the next person and try to let go of the fact that it didn't work with that first one. How is this person different? Or how is this person similar? How can I approach it? You learned a lot from that experience and obviously it's stuck with you. And we definitely all have those patients that we can just remember and wish we could go back in time. Or you know, if I could treat everyone that I worked with in my first year of practice right now it would be so different i want to yeah. like just apologize to all the first like year <laughs> patients that i treated like even the ones that got better Oh my gosh, <laughs> be like, <yeah>. yes. <laughs> i we didn't... could have gotten them
1: better faster
0: Yeah, and with probably a lot less nocebic language a lot yeah. less your pain is due to this super mechanical thing that you can never reassess on yourself again Yeah. My practice has changed. It sounds like your paradigm is also changing in the way that you're working with pain. And we know pain in the pelvis is even more nuanced, I think, than chronic pain in other parts of the body because you can't see it. You can't get deep into your own pelvis and see what's going on there. It's like this mystery box. With your orthopedic background and with your male pelvic pain experience now, how are you integrating the two together? Are there any surprises along your journey of working with male pelvic pain?
1: Absolutely. I love this question because I think back to when I first started in, in treating pelvic health and I felt like I had tunnel vision. I was like, okay, just the pelvic floor. Just looking at that. Maybe I'll like branch out, look at the hips a little bit. Maybe look at the low back a little bit but it was like very tunnel vision into the pelvic floor. And, you know, I had, um her name is Dr. Kelsey Kaiser. She's actually a pelvic health therapist over at USC right now. I think she might've had a patient cancellation. I'm like, oh, I have an evaluation right now. And I love if you were to come in and join me and I haven't learned from you yet. And she comes into the room with me. And first of all, she's like, this is not pelvic floor dysfunction. He did have, I guess pelvic floor dysfunction is a broad term but he had unilateral testicular pain. So I know we, we had that talk about ruling out hernia, but it ended up being like athletic pubalgia was his diagnosis based on the whole history and everything and objective exam. And we didn't even do a, a pelvic external internal exam because it was not indicated based on everything else we saw. And I just, I remember like just being like, wow, what the heck? Why was I not using my orthopedic knowledge? I was doing exactly what I was fearful of that I would do, right? Is not utilizing that information. And that's just ever since that moment, I've actually taken more of an orthopedic approach first, just to make sure I'm ruling things in and out. Using that knowledge I gained from the residency and all my training and mentoring is to at least rule out any sort of orthopedic we say orthopedics, pelvic health is orthopedics too. <laughs> but anyway, it's hard to differentiate that. I think that's actually important is because they're so related. You really can't treat only the pelvic floor and not look at what's around it because everything's connected by fascia and other tissues. I, I guess I would say I have that orthopedic hat on now with every patient I treat. Let's say even like post-op prostatectomy. I just had a guy come in few months ago and he was also complaining of hip pain after his prostatectomy and also end up treating him for his hip too. And I, I think just all this stuff interrelates. And one common mistake that I hear from my patients coming in that have been treated by multiple pelvic health practitioners prior is like, yeah, they did this biofeedback stuff and tell me to relax my pelvic floor and did some work inside my pelvic floor. might've gotten better, but then would come back and ask them what kind of exercise they do. They're like, oh, I guess just breathing and stretching my pelvic floor. They didn't look outside of what could be contributing to that. How's their hip strength? How's their core stability? What's their posture? Was there even a mechanism of injury that caused this to begin with or their behavioral components? And so I think that there's just so much out there. And that's another reason why I love it now too, is because... Even with my orthopedic patients, ask them about their pelvic floor, integrating that into their core stability, even though they might not have pelvic floor dysfunction, they've got poor pelvic floor control. They're not going to have great core stability. So Mm -hmm. to me, they're the same thing now. I might do like slightly different interventions, but internal or external pelvic floor work. But in general, I think they're just so related and you can't ignore one of them.
2: Yes. I actually have had the totally opposite experience from you in that I went directly into a women's health residency right after school. And to be honest, I had a pretty weak orthopedic background. My orthopedic rotation in PT school was in my very first year of school. And then after that, I did acute care and then did a pelvic floor rotation. So it had been years since I had any sort of orthopedic specific clinical training. And so I went right into this residency and looking at that zoomed out approach was really challenging. And now in my current role, I actually am doing a split between orthopedics and pelvic health. And I'm amazed at how much developing the orthopedic skills has helped with my pelvic floor patients as well. And I think that when we have that really tunnel vision approach, we tend to go towards interventions, to Monica's point, that the patient can't do on their own. It's a lot of manual therapy to the pelvic floor or biofeedback or things that they can't necessarily do on their own, which doesn't help with their self-efficacy. So when we're looking at the zoomed out approach and we can think about exercise and different movements that are zoomed out, we can have a more holistic treatment. So I think it's just, there really is no separating orthopedics and, and pelvic floor PT, in my opinion. I I actually wish I had done more orthopedics beforehand, but It is what it is, you know. (laughs) Brian, I'm curious, in your experience working in orthopedics exclusively and then transitioning into pelvic health, from a patient rapport, patient relationship perspective, communication perspective, is there anything that you do differently between those two populations? Have you seen any differences in how people approach their pain, dysfunction, symptoms in those areas between orthopedics and pelvic health that's really different or similar, actually? Oh
1: man, that's such a good question. There's definitely similarities and differences. It's just trying to find the the most notable ones. I think one of the biggest things that I notice, and just talking about men in general, because that's only my experiences in treating male pelvic health, is there's more of a macho approach, I would say, with the men in pelvic health, that sometimes we need to get over that. Your pain is real. And this is not something to go take a lacrosse ball and just start like smashing these tissues in this region. (laughs) It's a gentle area. We want to be
2: more careful. I've had the similar experience where like men have this approach, like I just got to muscle my way through these problems. In in regards to prostatectomy, there's been some patients who are like, oh, well, you know, I'm just leaking and I just got to do my exercises. And that moment where you validate like, wow, it must be really hard for you to be trying to work at your job. And feel like you're getting back to normal and yet you're leaking and having to wear diapers. Like how is that for you? And just that wall that seems to come down when they're like, yeah, it is really upsetting that I have to wear these diapers. You know what I mean? Like it's just, I don't think men get that emotional validation from their symptoms as much as maybe women do. So I could completely see where you're going with that.
1: You know what? Yeah. That's a great point.
0: While working with my male, patients, especially early on in my career, I noticed that too, is like my male patients were more transactional. Like, tell me what to Mm do. Tell me what I'm going to do. I did it. It worked. It didn't work. What's next? Okay. We're done. I feel better. Thank you. Bye. And it was harder to connect that biopsychosocial component to their pain. I think that I was still learning a lot about listening and maybe offering the reflective statements or the empathy statements. I thought they didn't need it because they didn't bring it up, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. And I think the opposite is true now is you don't have to be asking for that level of empathy or emotional support. Everyone needs it, whether they're orthopedic and they're coming in for pain, or whether they're pelvic health or whatever gender they are, whatever other category you want to think of. Everyone needs certain essentials when it comes to treatment. And I think those are listening without interruption. I think those are empathy, showing them that you really heard their story, not just, okay, yes, thank you, on to the next. And I think that men naturally get put into a box where it's not okay to talk about this. So if our expectation is that they're going to initiate that conversation, we're putting them back into this box where they can't open up because there's a shame of being seen as weak if you're upset about pain that you've had for a very long time. So I think we can help them regardless of what our orientation or gender is by making it a safe place, making PT, public PT, a safe space to break down barriers, to be honest about how you feel. And as providers, be okay with them not being okay not having to jump in and fix it then and be like, but I know the answer to your pelvic pain problem that nobody else has had. Because I don't think that's what patients are looking for. I think patients are looking for someone who's open-minded and willing to learn or collaborate with other providers. They don't expect us to know everything, but they expect us to know our limits and to be open to working with others. So males are interesting to treat. It's much more nuanced, I would say now, but I was pretty unaware, I guess, when I first treated men. I just thought they didn't need that component of pelvic PT. And now I'm just realizing I didn't ask or they didn't offer whichever one, probably both.
1: Both of you treat all genders. And I'm just curious, have you noticed any differences in willingness to share between different genders? Or like, you can feel hesitancy with divulging certain information, especially around sexual health?
0: Hmm. I don't know that I have. Part of me Hmm. wants to say yes, but then part of me says no, because I've had women who feel really awkward about it. I've had guys who feel awkward, and it's tough to say I've never asked them, do you feel awkward talking about this because I'm a female provider and you're a male coming in for male pelvic pain? Or is it just, usually they say it's just weird to talk about this with you. And I've assumed it's like a healthcare thing, but it might be related to me rather than to them. But I would say that there's plenty of people who are not willing to share even when you're trying to create that space. Or they feel really awkward. There's a lot of awkward laughing, a lot of, I've never been able to do this. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry. That actually sounds really hard. And maybe I get more of that from men. Is more like, I'm going to use laughter to push this out. I wouldn't want to put it on all men though and say that because I've had plenty of women who are totally the same way and are unwilling to go deep or you know, have a lot of anger and denial around their symptoms. I think you can't deny, though, that it's easier for me to connect with a woman as someone who identifies as a cisgender woman. I can naturally understand them more. I actually remember how awkward it was for me to first start asking about erectile function because I'm like, I can explain things about the vagina because I own a vagina, so I can get <laughs> yep. that lingo. But when I'm talking about an erection, it's, oh, God, how do I ask certain questions? And I think that was probably the hardest part I struggled with, is especially when males would come back and be like, so this is what I felt. And I'm like, is that normal? Do you, are you, do you normally <laughs> feel that during erection? I know yeah. how to diagnose your pain and your anatomy. And to be honest, it was like talking with other males that helped, talking with providers as well. But also if I had male friends or even partners and be like, do you feel that? Is that something you've experienced? Because I, I don't have that lived moment to moment experience. And of course, treating more patients, I've come to a point of being like, okay, yes, this thing that guys do is normal or this thing that they feel that doesn't sound normal, I can... Explore that more, but that was probably the most confusing part. Is I had the technical knowledge, but that doesn't tell you is it normal to have to like shake your penis out? Doesn't everyone have to do that? And I'm like, I I don't know. (laughs) I've never had a penis. My class didn't tell me that. It just (laughs) yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny,
1: Monica. Your answer to that I think really speaks to what we had talked about in the beginning with regard to. How the current culture within this field is that men treat men and women treat all genders. That doesn't happen everywhere. My main mentor at USC when I started, he's now in Utah, Dr. Peter Moon, and he's treating all genders. The the one who first introduced me to pelvic health at USC, Dr. Daniel Cradges, he treats all genders. So I think it, it depends on the need, like where, where Peter Moon is. He's in a place where there's barely any pelvic health therapist. Like, you know what? We just need someone to treat everyone, right? Whereas where we live, there's there's more of us, and I think they're like, why have this man treat all genders when there's enough females to be able to to treat everyone else? But it's interesting what you said because you had said that, that your patients—it's hard for you to come up with a difference in how comfortable they are with you, and so. If that's the case from the patient's perspective, why are we enforcing that with our practitioners? Why are men only treating men?
0: I'm glad you brought that up because as a female provider, when I first got into pelvic health, I was very nervous about treating male patients. I I was actually quite scared every time I treated one that I had to be ultra-professional and couldn't slip up ever. And I think I got this from hearing other providers or or somewhere because it it was this subconscious or unconscious thing that I was scared to treat males that they were all going to take advantage of the fact that they had their pants off or something. And that's not to say that people have not had that experience because people have had that experience. My Mm -hmm. experience though has not been that. I've only ever had two instances where people crossed a professional line and one of them was with a female. So that didn't even prepare me. That fear didn't even get me ready for, for what happened. But I did have that fear. And I think to Sammy's point, I don't know that I connected with them as openly Because the whole time I was trying to evaluate is this professional? Is this acting like I'm interested? Are they about to do something like they're dressed? I hope they're appropriate. I hope when I do manual, they're not becoming aroused or whatever. And that was a pretty stressful way to practice. And I don't know that I did a lot of conscious work about it, but I think at some point I was like, well, it's not happening. Males aren't out here trying to get pelvic PT and. I don't know, hit on me or take advantage of me or anything. Like these are people in pain. They want help. And to your point, especially if you're the only one around with this type of knowledge, they're going to want to come to you and they're looking for similar things. They're looking to be listened to. They're looking for empathy. I know I sound like a broken Mm -hmm. record, but if you're going to do that and collaborate with them, then I would say that most people probably don't care about the specifics of who you are. I do think there's going to be biases coming into it. I do think there's going to be people who would prefer a a provider of the same gender or they're going to be a little apprehensive of you and you have to build that trust and rapport over time. But that fear actually really changed up my practice. I didn't quite put words to it. I would totally agree with that experience. I
2: think that even in some of our training for male pelvic health as females, there's a lot around, you got to make sure that your male patient is properly draping himself. And if they're coming in for this pelvic floor complaint, you don't want to see their penis or scrotum and have them tuck that away. And I'm kind of like okay, I guess if that's not their chief complaint, we don't necessarily need to be looking at their penis or scrotum, but what if they're coming in with testicular pain? And I think the training was that we can't observe their genitals, even though on their female patients, we are observing their genitals very directly. And Mm. I just don't understand why in a medical context that needs to be weird. And I think that there's a lot of weirdness that's placed on us in our training that doesn't need to be there. And then it leads to us thinking, am I doing something wrong? Did I cross a boundary? Am I being professional enough? I had the same exact fears that Monica had and that self-monitoring. You can't be there for somebody effectively when you're watching every word that you say and paranoid the entire time that they're going to get the wrong idea.
1: Totally. And they'll pick up on it.
2: Yeah, they pick up yeah. on yeah. it. And I had the same exact experience of nobody's ever crossed that boundary with me. It's it hasn't been a thing. I haven't been practicing that long, I'll be frank about that, but it has been an issue so much less than I thought it would be. Exactly. Exactly. The people and- are coming in for healthcare. <laughs> you know, like they're not coming in to be creepy or weird. On the whole. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: If we're practicing that consensual culture that you talked about, if we're practicing in a trauma informed way, then I think we're actively trying to minimize harm can we completely reduce or prevent it we can't but i hate to see that there's a provider who's willing able who's got a, a certain amount of expertise and he's not able to practice openly because yeah. of a policy or like a risk management thing and this sounds like mm-hmm. an organizational issue right there's places where people are doing
2: it successfully the organization is supporting them in treating female patients as a male provider and I think it's all about communicating, okay, what are our policies on this and trying to come up with a way to help the provider feel supported, help the patients feel supported. I'm curious, Brian, with your interactions with these male pelvic health therapists, what do they do to make this a thing? Like how do they support their male therapists? Do they use chaperones? Do they set things up differently to mitigate some of that so-called risk?
1: No. no. So th- there, there's not a lot <laughs> that I know of. I'm not do it, but I can definitely speak to Dr. Daniel Carajs did not have chaperones. He's been treating for longer. I think before this recent news of these sexual misconducts kind of came to light. But then even my friend over in Utah, he's, as far as I'm aware, not using chaperones and he's treating all genders. So it's really interesting how just, like you said, like a, an institution thing, what are their policies? Yeah, they don't have chaperones. And that's the thing. I think in my case, I would maybe from a mitigating risk standpoint, I would like to have a chaperone. But oftentimes patients don't want someone else in the room. Mm -hmm. They're like, it's enough with just you here. I don't want someone else observing this at the same time. And I think it's important that they have that option so that they choose whatever they're most comfortable with.
0: In some ways, I think maybe having a chaperone also implies that something bad could happen.
1: Like, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, Absolutely. we
0: have to chaperone this dance so these teenagers keep their mm. dirty little hormone paws off each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's a bad example for public health. But yeah. if but I walked yeah, in totally. and somebody called it a chaperone, I'd be like, is this provider on parole? Is this provider... <laughs> In trouble? Is is this provider doing something bad? And so I think, in an effort to protect, we're almost giving the impression that something bad may happen. But in orthopedics, we don't ask. I, and I know this is more sensitive, and there's more layers and nuances to this. But I don't know. I've never had a front desk that was like, "Would you prefer a male or a female therapist for your elbow pain?" And people may have a preference. Of course, this is a lot more sensitive, but I would love to be a patient, call a clinic and have someone say, hey, we have a variety of providers. We actually have someone who is queer or non-binary or specializes in working with that population. Would you like to work with them? Would you like to work with this therapist, that therapist? And I think we're stronger when we have that offering because pelvic pain happens to anyone with a pelvis.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? I think it's so important to have those options out there for patients to be comfortable because, like, we're comfortable. But for someone going in there for the first time, they don't know what's going on. They don't know what we're going to do. They may have heard things and they might be a little apprehensive or nervous. It's just so important. And we know how anxiety plays a role in, in pelvic health, right? If there's anything that we can do to help them feel more comfortable, is huge. And actually, one of the communities that I identify myself with is the LGBTQ community. And much of my patient population at USC identified as gay because one of our main referral sources was a urologist over in downtown LA, and he identified himself as gay. And so actually, at at least within that community, and, and I don't know if this goes with all different sources of communities, but at least from my experience with men who identify as gay they often prefer a gay provider. And I have a husband, and I may not identify as gay, but just for simplicity's sake, let's say I am. And the patients, they really felt comfortable talking to me. And I even had this one scenario where they didn't know coming into it that I was a part of this community. But as we're working, I might just be like, oh, you know, my husband, whatever. And then I can cast you in the face. Oh, interesting. And so they were pretty quiet throughout the session, but. Later on, I got a phone call. The front desk, hey Brian, you had a phone call from a patient, and it was this patient that I was just talking about. And he starts asking me about sexual health. I find that so sweet because he's like, I think you you'll understand this better. I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about this with someone who's not gay, but because you are, I'd like to talk to you about this. Thank you for taking time to talk to me about this over the phone. That is proof right there that it's so important that patients can have options and that we're really open and give that information.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that not everyone's going to be the right provider for everybody. Some people are going to be better suited to work with certain people. And there are such great, unique skills that you bring with your knowledge and your training, Brian, that I think that half the population should not be missing out on that. So I, I think that it would be great to see some change in the system where we allow the patient to choose. I think that I'm echoing both of your sentiments here, which is options, choice. We need to offer the patient the choice of who they want to work with, whether or not they want a chaperone. All these different choices that we can offer, that's what allows us to serve our patients individually and give them the best experience. And I think people would really benefit from working with you. So I hope that's something that changes in the future.
1: I think it will. I think as time goes on, at least talking as a male, like more and more men are getting into this field. And then I'm hoping it just becomes an all gender thing. People of all different genders come in and it just becomes this nice, diverse population of practitioners and patients get to choose who they're comfortable with. This is me being like totally idealistic, but I think I it's heading it. in I love that it. Direction. Keep
2: going. <laughs> no, I, I think it's heading yeah, in that I direction. See it. And I just, yeah.
1: I just, finally took my first continuing education course in person. Uh, And I was with Herman and Wallace. It was male pelvic health. I thought that was a great one to get an introduction to, even though I've been treating it for a couple of years now. It was just such an amazing experience. And it was two men and eight females. And they were all so welcoming and so enthusiastic that they were there, so thankful and grateful. It was just an amazing experience. And I will say, not to stir up the pot, but the APTA Academy of Pelvic Health is not as welcoming for male right. providers. We're talking about mm-hmm. barriers and a big one is education. And I tried so hard to get into one of the Academy of Pelvic Health courses, but they require required to get a female medical model. So how do you find one? First of all, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Second of all, it costs money, right? So there's the, the financial barrier there. And I tried so hard and I remember I was like, I have this experience. Can I can I do this webinar before this class? And they're like, No, you have to take level one first, regardless of your experience. You have to get a female medical model. And I remember I got that work, got my friend who was in Portland, and she was willing to do that for me and got all set up. And then the course ended up being sold out. I asked if I could still get in. They said no. I'm like, okay, I am done. This is way too difficult. And at that moment I got very frustrated. And I'm so thankful for Herman and Wallace for how accepting they are. I just want to take everything with them now. (laughs) Give me all the Herman and Wallace courses. Holly Tanner was the, the main instructor in that course, and she's just an incredible woman. I wish I could speak like her. And I'm still learning how to be a good communicator with regard to just how diverse gender and sexuality is because it's just so diverse and such a large spectrum. And she's just so good at talking about it. And I I love that course. I don't know if you've taken the male pelvic health course, but you might have taken Herman and Wallace.
2: Yeah. You're making I, yeah. me want to okay. take it now. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, no, it's it, it's amazing. <laughs>
1: like I yeah, I recommend that for everyone. And if the Academy of Pelvic Health is listening to this, I'm sorry, but get your act together because by requiring men to get female medical models, they're just pushing this idea that there's an issue with being a man, essentially.
0: In this practice. In this practice.
1: Yeah. yeah. Specifically yeah. in this practice.
0: And there's, again, so many options. There's so many options for choice. So I'm glad you say that. I remember there was a male in a pelvic health course I took, level one. And there was like 40 of us in pelvic one and one guy. And so they just said, is anyone comfortable working with this male? And four or five women raised their hands. and he was partnered with them, and he was so respectful and so kind. And I do remember this kind of hush fell over the room when a male provider walked in. And it was <laughs> this was also five years ago.
1: Yeah, it's I think it's different now.
0: This was a Herman and Wallace course, but I guess they didn't require the model like you said. But it was kind of like, oh. and you know, there's a long history there too. There's a lot of stuff that has happened to women at the hands of men and male providers. Mm-hmm. But I think we at the same time, need to sit with our own trauma, if that's what's informing our choices, Mm -hmm. and do what we're comfortable with. I was never pressured to work with that male in that course. And at that time, I wasn't comfortable with that. So I don't know why we have to erect so many barriers, like you said, to people of different genders, people of different orientations, getting into this field, when ultimately, that's what would make our field more robust. Talking with a male provider about, hey, Brian, is shaking your penis normal for all men because I have this patient (laughs) who says it to me, you know, or again, using your knowledge base and openly sharing, because I'm sure you'll have questions when you work with female patients. Like, hey, the textbooks don't really cover this one. (laughs) Um, And so the more diversity we have, the better we will serve our patients. And so glad we're talking about that. Yeah. So, Brian, we're ready for the lightning round. Okay. We've got a few more questions for you. What is your favorite drink at the moment?
1: Oh, man. Easy. Spicy mezcal margarita.
2: Oh. Ooh. Um,
1: yeah, not going to lie. I kind of perfected this one.
2: Can you share your recipe? No, my... <laughs> we least. can put it in the show notes. <laughs> this oh. is the second
0: margarita. I just want to say this is the second margarita recipe we are sharing yep. on the show. We clearly have a guest preference. Yeah, yep. no,
1: I did listen to, to Anne-Marie yesterday the podcast. We interviewed her and she mentioned margarita. And I was like, that margarita's got nothing on this one. She's going okay. to
2: have
0: to try mine. <laughs> we, we might need to
2: do like a poll on so, Instagram for our listeners and we'll see whose margarita recipe wins out. <laughs> Drum up some I competition. Mean,
1: you, <laughs> you got to like the spice, number one. Yeah. I and mean, then you got to like mezcal. So if you okay. don't like either of those, and this wouldn't be the drink for you, but I usually do around an ounce and a half of mezcal, maybe three quarters of an ounce of agave syrup. You know, you know how you would make simple syrup? You do the same sure. thing with agave. Mm-hmm. And then muddle in the jalapenos and cucumbers with the agave in the uh, cocktail shaker, pour in the mezcal, pour in about three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, shake it up, and then there you go. I just, I love how the spiciness and then from the jalapenos and then the smokiness from the mezcal really complement each other. And then I would also even, did I say adding in cucumbers? Yep, yeah, you did. Okay. It's not required, but I think it does help make it like when it's hotter out, it's nice to have a little bit of that cucumber cool in it.
2: All right. Next question for you, Brian. What is the best book you've read lately?
1: So I used to read so much. I think PT school and residency ruined me because then you get so used to reading articles all the time. And then you're like, I don't want to read a single word again in my life. Same. But (laughs) this book I'm reading right now that's been taking me approximately two years to finish. (laughs) It's very sad. But it's called Quiet by Susan Kane. I've Have heard of either of you heard of this book? It's really interesting. So it's about how to basically flourish as an introvert in an extroverted society. What I mean by that is in the U.S., we really put extroverts on a pedestal. And we're like, we got to be like these people. Look at how outgoing they are. And as an introvert, sometimes we can think, are we normal? Is it weird that I'm shy and I don't want to go out and party? Is it weird that I just would rather stay at home, maybe watch a show? play with my dogs type of thing. And it was actually a gift from a patient over two years ago. And this patient, you know, you just have those. I mean, I remember all my patients, but this one was just so special to me. Her and I really connected. And we got into these conversations about like, because we're both friendly people. And so a lot of people would label us as extroverts. But where we get our energy is just from quiet time or smaller groups of people. And so she actually finished that book and she gave it to me. And it's so special. Like I so I that's I really cool. like that book. And yeah. So if other of you identify as introverts and yep. you want to learn more about it, it's a great one.
0: Cool. I'm gonna check that out. Oh, that's awesome. Ryan, what is the first thing you do in a challenging situation?
1: Try to fix it right away.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: in any challenging situation, if I'm not feeling good, fixing it right away will help me feel better. And I think it does, but it depends on the situation and the person that it involves. So classic example, my husband needs time to cool off. And I just want to talk about then and there get it done with. So that's what I like to do. But I've had to adapt just in general to being quiet, slowing down, listening, taking a step back. But the first thing I would like to do is just fix the situation right then and there. And actually, when we're with patients, though, we, we don't have the luxury to just be like, you know what, I'm just gonna take some time off here. Just give me five minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is important to yeah. sort of fix it then and there, or sit with it a little bit down a situation. But yeah, I'm, I'm a fixer at heart, unfortunately.
2: I can sympathize. <laughs> if you weren't a PT, what would you do for work?
1: I love this question because I actually think about it often. And I've actually come up with two options. So one of them would be a financial advisor which is just so different from what I'm doing right now, <laughs> but here's why I'm an identical twin and that's what he does.
2: Oh, and,
0: okay.
1: And so part of me is like, you know, maybe genetically I could be good at this too. And I just chose a different path, but I also just, I'm, I'm very drawn to things I don't know a lot about. And when I first started being like, you know what, I got to get an IRA. I got to start investing. It just opened up this whole world of things to learn, and I became really interested in it. So, I I would love to spend more time with that and maybe even have that as a profession if I wasn't a PT. But then, the other option too would be a urologist. Hmm. And I would love to be able to save lives. That just sounds amazing to me. You go home at the end of the day, and like, I just saved a few people from prostate cancer. Yeah. I think that's so rewarding. And if I had to be a urologist, I would probably gravitate more towards that. And just with the knowledge about pelvic floor now, I feel like I'd be able to really understand a lot of patient complaints better.
0: Cool. How do you define being a conscious clinician?
1: So to me, I think the key word there is just is conscious. What does conscious mean? And I think that's being self-aware, being mindful, being very deliberate in everything that you do. And then when you add in clinician there, that just means you're doing all that within the realm of being a clinician in healthcare. I think it's so important that as clinicians that we do a lot of self-care and that we do have self-awareness and that we're self-actualized because that's so important for them being able to treat patients that might not be there yet and it'll help us better understand them and treat them. And I believe very strongly that any clinician, everyone in general, should be doing self-care and a lot of work on themselves to be able to better understand themselves and just be conscious.
0: Awesome. Brian, how could people connect with you if they wanted to get in touch?
1: So I have an email, of course, then we all have emails. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I have a few emails, unfortunately, too many emails. So the one that where people can reach me at, it would be my last name, SterlingDPT at gmail.com. They could also follow me on Instagram at SterlingDPT. Shamefully, that Instagram is not very active. I'm not a huge social media guy, but maybe that time's going to come along where I'm going to be much more active on that. Those are probably the two best ways to to reach me.
0: All right. Awesome. We'll link all that information in the show notes. Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for taking the time to share your experiences with diversity in pelvic health and what it's been like to be a male provider. Thank you, Brian.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity, both of you. You're doing amazing things with this podcast. I love listening to your episodes. It really is changing the way I practice, which I'm sure is music to your ears, right? Because that's the whole <laughs> point. Like you want to really try to help shape and, and change our profession for the better and make sure that clinicians have a voice and that we're really talking about the things that people just aren't talking about. So thank you both so much for this opportunity and for doing what you're doing.
0: Thanks, Aww. Brian. Thanks. All right, everyone. Stay conscious. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode.
2: Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at theconsciousclinician and Facebook backslash theconsciousclinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.